Hey everyone, hey, today I have a story for you. And this story, it goes far back and has deep, long, beautiful roots within my family. And it starts way back when I lived near the Ocklockney River in North Florida. My dad, my brothers and I, we all went to the same place each day, the K through 12 Florida State University School where us siblings attended and my father, well, he taught there. We had to drive from up near the Ocklockney down 45 minutes to get to school every single day. And so you can imagine, after years of doing this, that one, we knew the roads pretty well, and two, would go a little faster than the legal posted speed limit. In fact, everyone did. It was called the North Florida Speedway for a reason, because everyone went a little faster than 55. Sometimes it was 65, 85, 110. It didn't matter. We were driving down the North Florida Speedway early one morning before the sun had crested the trees and the thick Florida fog still hugged the ground. We were going a little faster than the legal posted speed limit when from out on the side of the road hopped a little bunny rabbit. Now, I would like to say that my dad slammed on his brakes, swerved out of the way just in time to miss the little guy being the hero of the day, but that's just not how this story goes. And my dad hit the bunny. With shock and horror and a little bit of awe, my brother, my brother and me, we whipped our heads around to see the awesome grotesquerie that befell our morning when we saw that this bunny was half dead. Stop the car, stop the car, we shouted as my dad slammed on the brake, swerved to the side of the road and got out. He saw it too. His worst nightmares becoming realized. This bunny was lying on the side of the road, half dead and twitching. He knew he needed to do something to put it out of its misery. But what? Now, he didn't carry guns in the back of his car anymore. All he had was an aerosol can of chemical-filled hairspray. And then it hit him. He figured if he could get enough chemicals down into the wounds of this bunny, then perhaps, just maybe, perhaps, it would put it out of its misery. And we could forget that this whole thing ever happened. He began to spray, as my brothers and I, we drifted off to sleep long ago because it was so early in the morning. Once the can of hairspray had run out, my dad tossed it back into the back of his car, buckled up, and took one last look into the mirror. And that's when he saw it. The strangest thing my dad had ever seen in his entire life. This little rabbit had gotten up, hopped to the side of the road, and with one little paw and a big old grin, began to wave at my dad as he drove off into the fog. That's not right, he thought. That's not right. What? He kept asking. 
over and over and over all throughout the day. He kept saying, what? What? He would ask himself, and, and he would dare not tell anybody lest they think him the one who inhaled too much aerosol. But he knew what he saw. He knew, he saw that this bunny was alive or, or at least puppeted by some uncanny force or, or maybe he was, he was being tricked. But he knew that this bunny rabbit had gotten up, hopped to the side of the road and began to wave with his little paw. My dad knew he had to go home the exact same way. He knew he had to see what had become of the waving bunny. And so after school, he quickly corralled us all into one vehicle and he began to drive the legal posted speed limit of 110 down the North Florida Speedway. And when he had approached the spot where he hit the bunny, he began to slow down and to his utter relief, he saw nothing on the side of the road. Whew. That is, until he began to drive past the exact spot. And lo and behold, farther back, deeper into the woods, the grinning face of that bunny was left standing, one paw in the air, waving back at my father. We pulled into the driveway and my siblings and I all ran into the house while my dad stayed out and stewed. How is this possible? He asked. He flung open the back of the trunk, grabbed that can of hairspray, and then... Of course. How could he have missed it? It was right there in front of him this entire time. It was in big, bold, black letters on the front of the can. May cause permanent wave to damaged hair. Don't always assume you know where a story is going. <laughs> Thanks so much for exploring with me today as we dive into the utterly unexpected with Ezekiel. Today, I want you to put away all of your preconceived notions about what you might expect because Ezekiel is a book filled with the unexpected. And the unexpected can often get lost in translation. Maybe literally, maybe culturally, we'll find out. You know, we've been going through these prophetic books for a while now, and we have not yet talked about how to read the books well. And in order to understand the prophetic literature, especially Ezekiel, you should know how to read the books. Remember how in the book of Numbers we talked briefly about how prophets, they're not fortune tellers within the Bible. They may speak on future events, and they may warn people of coming judgment, but they are not trying to tell us the future. The Bible Project has a great way of saying this. The prophetic books do not act as a decoder ring from a cereal box prize to tell you when the end of the world will be. No, no, no. They're much more complicated than that. The prophets utter the words of God on behalf of God to the people of God. And the prophets are largely concerned with how the Mosaic Covenant is holding up. Remember, back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God outlines this caveat within the law. It says that if people do well, they'll be blessed, and if not, they'll be, you know, destroyed. And the prophets, these silly little guys, they don't want everyone they know and love to be destroyed. They call that day 
the day where God will judge humanity and human sin, the day of the Lord, and they are trying to warn people about it. So these prophets are called by God to speak on behalf of God. And, and sometimes God is speaking through the old scrolls. And so there's a lot of references back to other books that we've looked at. Like we'll see a lot of references to creation in Ezekiel. Other times God is saying what he's always said, but in a totally new way. Like when Ezekiel is forced to lie on the ground tied up for several years, several years. That can't be right. Huh. No, yeah, several years. There you go. And the words, the stories, the images used by the prophets, they're, they're hardly ever literal. In fact, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week with Daniel, but with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, the prophetic language used is poetry. It's symbolic, and it's deeply saturated in ancient Hebrew culture. This figurative way of speaking allows the authors to universalize their message so that the problems facing Israel are problems that are facing humanity as well. And this allows the scriptures to speak to all kinds of people in all kinds of cultures at all kinds of times. And so I don't know about you, but I'm super thankful that these books are hard to understand because it makes it universal. But they are highly symbolic, and they require you to do some actual biblical study if you don't want your brain to melt while you're reading them. And that brings us to the book itself. The first two thirds of Ezekiel should be familiar to those of us who have explored the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah already. It starts with a prophet who is called by God, and the prophet thinks that he's not up to the task. As he says, he sat down for seven days utterly overwhelmed. But God exhorts him, and Ezekiel is then driven by the Lord to judge the Israelites who are in exile. Because that's right, this is our first twist of the story. This happens to Ezekiel while he's in exile. He's sitting on the banks of a river, and he is met by the glory of God who is in Babylon. Imagine with me, if you will, that you're a baker from Jerusalem whose family was taken from you during the exile. You were taken to Babylon and put into this tent city outside of the Babylonian walls, and you're sitting next to a river at night, stewing over the exile, asking how could a good God let something like this happen, when you remember. It's your buddy Ezekiel's birthday. You made him a cake, remember, from the nearby wheat that you stole? So you take him the cake, only to find out that he is having a vision from the very God who you thought had completely abandoned and left you and your people. Not only is Ezekiel having a vision from God in exile, his vision is that the glory of God is meeting the people of God in exile. The very thing that your ancestors told you was impossible is becoming possible with God. Namely, that God is speaking to the people outside of the Promised Land. And the people in exile haven't quite picked up on why exactly they're the ones in exile. They still don't understand that it's due to their covenant unfaithfulness. Not because Yahweh Elohim is powerless like they assumed, and we talked about in the last episode, but precisely because he is powerful that the people are in exile. And Ezekiel's message to these exiles is that there will soon be another Babylonian attack on Jerusalem, and it will utterly destroy the city. Because, and this is something I learned while studying for this episode, there are two Babylonian captivities. <laughs> the first one happens in roughly 587 BC, 
The second one happens five years later in 582 BC. Ezekiel was taken captive during the first Babylonian exile, and he can foresee this second one coming. I'm learning right here with you guys. And so Ezekiel displays this very message through a series of what are called sign acts. You can think of them like parables that are being acted out. He's compelled to be silent unless the words are from God. He reenacts the coming siege of Jerusalem and destroys his clay figurines. He lays on a sign for 430 days eating things cooked over poop. And still no one listens. He judges and laments the people, the city, for several chapters, claiming that they have allied with the nations, and so the glory of God has been taken up from the city of Jerusalem, and that's why it's meeting him there in Babylon. And they have allied with the nations. And that's exactly why the second Babylonian captivity takes place. Then in chapter 25, Ezekiel begins to judge and lament the nations. For example, Tyre. From what I understand, Tyre was this giant in the trading world, a city that would rival London and Shanghai today. It even had its own army to fight off invading captors. No one in their mind thought that it could be taken down. But Ezekiel, he sees it as a massive trading ship far out on the sea, when suddenly a wind comes and capsizes it shattering the unsinkable ship. Or what about in chapter 29, when Ezekiel sees Egypt as this mighty, strong piece of wood? Israel had allied herself with the city precisely because of the strength of Egypt. But when the stick is leaned upon for support, it snaps. Or maybe like a fearsome crocodile that no hunter could take down, and then traps itself in a net and is eaten by birds. Ezekiel sees these nations who the ancient world thought could not be taken down are being crushed under the thumb of Babylon. And so in chapter 33, Ezekiel transitions to God's judgment over something much, much greater than Israel, and even much, much greater than the nations, but rather human evil itself. Ezekiel sees that the core of all of this violence and destruction comes from sin. You see, Ezekiel sees human evil as this massive, beastly man named Gog. He's defeated in this massive battle between Yahweh and Gog through earthquakes and fire. And when this happens, when human evil is dealt with, God will usher in a new creation under the reign of his anointed Messiah. Because as the glory of God met Ezekiel at the beginning and left the temple in Jerusalem, the glory of God will re-enter the new creation at the new temple by the east gate and will rest and reign in a new Jerusalem. And Ezekiel sees this, this new creation as causing the glory of the Lord to pour forth out of the temple of God as this river, and it, and it gives life and abundance to even the most dead parts of the world. The glory of God going out to even the most unlikely of places. The glory of God going from the temple to Babylon.
The Hebrew word for glory is chavod, and as you can tell, it's a major piece within Ezekiel's puzzle here. I think here, from what at least I can tell, a good English word for kabod is something like reputation. But it implies this sort of this sort of weightiness, an important, abundant reputation. It can refer to someone's immense wealth. It can refer to someone's great honor. But I think at the end, it's something about their reputation. But for the Israelites in exile, God's glory, his reputation, his representation was taken up from them when they were exiled. So the fact that Ezekiel sees the glory of God and is connected to the glory of God, even though he's in the exile city of Babylon, is nothing short of significant. If Isaiah tells us that the snake crusher will come as God's perfect representative, and Jeremiah tells us that the perfect representative will be the fullness of God's glory to redeem Israel, then Ezekiel shows us that this perfect representative, God's Messiah, the Anointed One, will be the express fullness of God's glory into the whole world, stretching from Israel right into Babylon. The snake crusher will leave the throne room that Isaiah saw in his vision and will dwell in the deepest, darkest places of human depravity. The snake crusher, the Messiah, will draw near to the far off. But he will draw near to the far off in Israel like the elders and the religious leaders, according to Ezekiel, and he will draw near to the far off in the nations, like the Gentiles and the wicked, and he will draw them close. The Messiah will be the express image of God's glory in a far-off world, the express image of God's glory in Babylon, and he will bring the dead, dry bones of human wickedness and sin back to life. He will bring humanity back to Eden, back into new creation, and creation will fully dwell and commune with God. The Messiah will bear the reputation, the honor, the representation of God. <laughs> At least according to Ezekiel. Thanks so much. My name was Austin. This was Bible Unbound. We'll see you next week.